that we are sinful and worthy of death. This is foundational or we, we enter into cheap grace. We don't realize that, you know, what the price that's been paid for us if we don't understand that our, that our sin is worthy of death. And I think that we live in a culture of cheap grace, that, that we, we just kind of take a, a license to sin when, when if we really understood that Jesus endured a penalty that was ours, that we would, we would avoid sin at all costs. And, uh, and we, would, we would run to his grace because we all fall short. We must acknowledge that we are sinful and worthy of death. Everyone stands guilty before God. God is faithful to his word and will condemn sin. No one can escape God's righteous judgment. No one. And when we come to grips with that, the reality that our sin condemns us to death, then we realize our desperate need of a Savior and confess. And when I say confess, what I mean is we agree with God. We agree with God about our sin. We confess our sin and we repent, change our minds, our directions. We throw ourselves on the mercy of God who is faithful to his promises and casts our sin on his son and remove our sin and grants us. This is, this is the great exchange. He grants us the righteousness of Christ. The resume of God himself becomes our very own. And our sin will never stick. It will never hold us as Christ was not held in the grave, neither will we, we because we stand we stand before God in the righteous. We have peace with God. So I read our passage this morning. If you're with me, we're in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. And Paul is basically, um, he's speculating here. I believe the Holy Spirit is fully involved here and, and basically is 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 answering the, the, the question that would come up based on verses 28 and 29 of the previous chapter. And, uh, and, and starts off with, and what's, what's the benefit of being a Jew? And what, what's the benefit of being circumcised? This would be the obvious question on the other side of, and we'll look at that in just a minute. But let me read the passage. And it says this. Then what advantage has the Jews, or the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Paul says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some, this is question number two now, what if some were unfaithful? Does, the, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, Paul says. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And then question three, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous uh, to inflict uh, wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. Paul continues to answer these, his own hypothetical questions. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, and Paul says their condemnation is just. Look, we, we want to rationalize our sin rather than repent. We, we, we want to try to cover up. We see it in the garden. We either want to hide or cover up or blame somebody or find some way out 
of, uh, but, but Jesus says, I am the way. God has made the way out and it's us surrendering to his lordship, acknowledging our sin, begging on his grace and mercy, receiving the forgiveness that he says, thou cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. I'll make you whiter than snow. I mean, this is the promises. This is what God was doing in Christ and declared through the prophets and has realized by his power and by his purpose. And now there is a way. There is a way back to the Father. Paul continues to address the Jews in this passage. He expects and answers some objections he knows the previous section may have triggered. Paul puts himself in the listener's shoes and speculates their rebuttal. And so I think we get, there's an application here, and it's brief, and I'll just say this. In Second Peter for, uh, chapter, oh man, stuff just 2, 15. Anyway, we always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. Um, you know, an answer for the hope that lies within us. You know, one of the things we see Paul doing in this passage is he is, he is already anticipating what their response might be. He's already trying to walk in their shoes so that he might be relatable to them. Do we do that? Do we do that? Do we, do we love people so richly that we, um, that we, we, we long to understand things from their perspective? Or are we just trying? I mean, and there's no, I mean, obviously we want to see people come to Christ. We believe this is the antidote for humanity's ills, that the only thing that satisfies our sin debt is the cross of Christ. We, we we're convinced of that. But when we approach people with this glorious good news, have we prayerfully um, acknowledged that maybe their circumstances are different from mine? Because Paul's talking to Jews here and he talks about we. I mean, it's, he, has a, he, has a, he has a good relatability to this group. He is a Jew. Um, but he speculates on these four questions and answers those appropriately. So what's the big idea? The big idea is this, that God's faithfulness is the basis for our salvation, not our faithfulness. It's God's faithfulness. We have no basis outside of God's grace for being made right with God. Paul states that all stand guilty before God. All of us. So I have a question. And I want to start with this and, uh, and probably finish with this. The big question is this. If God's faithfulness is not dependent on my faithfulness, then why should I be faithful? And if my sinfulness makes God look so good in his righteousness, then why should he punish me? That's really what we're getting after here. Why should he punish me? All of this is moving to verse 20. All of this, all of that, that, that Paul is talking about through the latter part of chapter 1, verse two, chapter 2, and now into chapter 3, Paul ends like this is the climax of this whole piece on we have no excuse, we have no out. God's wrath is poured out against humanity. We cannot satisfy the righteous requirements of the law. We fall short of God's glory. And so what must we do? And he finishes verse 20. He says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, in God's sight, since through, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The purpose of the law from God's perspective was to show us our inability to meet God's righteous standards. 
is to point out our sin nature so that we might do what? That we might repent. That we might acknowledge God's perspective on our circumstances and that we might receive his, his gift of grace and mercy in the person of Jesus Christ. So the background to this passage was this. In, in chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, it says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, speaking of the law. His praise is not from man, but of God, but from God. And so what we understand is, is that, you know, Remember John the Baptist is talking to the Pharisees and, uh, and they're claiming their relationship with God is through their lineage to Abraham. Uh, the blood of Abraham flows in my veins. I'm right with God. And, uh, and, and John the Baptist says the axe is already at the root. What we must understand is that circumcision, like, and I think that the Christian community is often guilty of this. I mean, we can wear the T-shirts and, and the chains and the bumper stickers and, and the hats and all this. And I'm not saying those things are bad if they're an expression of a reality that's already present in our hearts. But if that's what's going to declare that we are right with God and that we're, we're, we're a Christian, we're a follower of Christ, that's not how it works. Circumcision, the cutting off of the sinful nature, must be something that's done inwardly that manifests itself outwardly now let me be clear genuine faith acts genuine faith works you can that's a pun on words <laughs> like it works but it works and so we have to understand that we are saved by faith and faith alone like it, it, we don't we don't earn our salvation on any level we can't merit god's approval or grace it is something that is given us out of his faithfulness because of his promises. I mean, the only reason we stand right with God is because God promised to do something for us in Christ, and we believed he did. And it, and it, you know, it starts back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. It says, Abraham believed God's what? Word, promises, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's always been about faith. It's faith. It's, it's faith in God's promises and God's word, God's covenant that administers the reality of new creation, transformation. Um, anything that's promised in scripture becomes reality by faith, by faith. And so he starts off with, then what advantage has the Jew? And what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, Paul answers his own question. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So he, he says to begin with, you know, this letter is so like, it's, it, it, it's so balanced that we can go to chapter 9 of this same letter in verses 4 and 5. And Paul here says to begin with, they were entrusted with God's promises. They were entrusted with God's word. But that's just to begin with. Paul can, continues this list in Romans 9, 4 through 5. He says, they are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So for them to say, wow, well then, you know, if that's what's required, then what's, what's the benefit of being a Jew? Or what's the benefit of circumcision? He says, man, do you understand that you've been entrusted with the very revelation of God himself? 
And there's responsibility that comes with that. See, the Jews were entrusted with God's word, preserving them until the coming of Christ, who was the fulfillment of prophetic scripture. These, this, was all, this was all temporary, as Hebrews talks about, until the permanent solution in Christ came, the once and for all sacrifice of Christ that, 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 uh, that deemed those that would have faith in him righteous and holy and blameless. Because that's the status of Christ. That's the the resume of Jesus. And do you believe, as the word declares, that that's been imputed to your spiritual account? Not because of something you've done, but because you believed what God has done. So the question, in, in more layman terms, was this. Are you stating that there is no advantage to being trained in God's way? A Jew and circumcised biblical religion? Are you saying that there's no advantage to this? And Paul's answer is, sure there is. Just not what you have assumed. There is a greater advantage in having or being in charge of his word and the knowledge of his word, his revelation of himself. I mean, the, 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 the most profound expression of this is when the word became flesh and dwelt among him. He came as a Jew first to the Jews. I mean, talk about God's word entrusted. <laughs> the very revelation of himself. We have, we have the advantage of God's word to lead us to faith as well. I, you know, one of the things I think often we, um, we take for granted is, is the, the, the availability of God's word to us. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, we, we got it on the internet. It's, 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 it's all, and I think sometimes we take it for granted. Um, we don't we don't uh, we don't give it its status and its value. I mean, if it's equated with Jesus Himself, I mean, there is something profound about His Word. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the Word of Christ, and and that is the, the Word cultivates and calls us to faith, and it's this faith that saves us, this gift of faith that God gives us through His Word that brings us to a to an understanding and then belief, and then transforms us into new creations, and then continues to transform us as we believe his word and trust. I mean, that's the, that's the active ingredient in faith, isn't it? It's trusting God for his promises, trusting him. Verse 3 and 4 goes on to say, And what if some, some meaning some Jews, were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? I mean, like it sounds like a, a kind of a crazy question. Like, so because, because what he's really saying here is Jesus showed up on the scene, the embodiment of the law, the revelation of God, the Messiah has arrived and they have completely rejected him, completely rejected him. And they're saying if their unfaithfulness to God's word through the rejection of Christ, does that nullify God's faithfulness? And Paul's like, no way. I mean, God is... God's faithfulness is not an attribute. It's who he is. That's, that's who he is. He, he is the pinnacle. He is the, he is the source of what faithfulness is. And do you know that it's a fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Like, it is what God is, is, is causing us to become. Paul even says, uh, I think it's in 2 Corinthians, that when they were, when they were questioning his, uh, his integrity or his faithfulness, Paul says, my faithfulness flows out of his faithfulness. 
In fact, he declared his own faithfulness to be, to be bound up in God's faithfulness. And that, that is what God is doing in us by his spirit. He is producing faithfulness because that's not an attribute of God. That's who he is and that's who he's making us to be. So does, you know, and hypothetical question, but does our, does our disbelief in God's prov, uh, God's faithfulness to his promises, um, does that nullify God's faithfulness? No, God's going to be faithful to what he's promised, irrelevant if anybody or everybody or nobody chooses to believe or be faithful to his word. God remains faithful. He is true. He is true to himself because he will not deny him. In fact, 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? For he cannot deny himself. This is who he is. Back to verses, verse 4 in Romans 3. Paul says, by no means, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be just or justified in your words and prevail when you judge. Now, I want to encourage you to do something. When you you read a portion of scripture that, um, that refers to Old Testament text, I encourage you to go back and read it in its context because we really won't get the thrust or the the fullness of it without reading its full context. So this passage comes from Psalms 51, and he he specifically quotes verse 4. And let me just give a quick background on this. David was the second king of Israel. Um, David is one of their most, you know, this is the, the line of David, the king of Judah, um, he would, he was the king of Judah and Israel, but, but in, he was from the line of Judah would come the Messiah. And this, this king that was glorious in, in battle, he's the one that beheaded, um, Goliath, uh, you know, Saul slayed his, his thousands, David his ten thousands. Um, but there was a day where kings were meant to be at war and he was on a rooftop and he, he looked out over and saw a lady bathing, uh, named Bathsheba, uh, Long story short, uh, he acted on his lust. He invited her in. He slept with her. She became pregnant. He, uh, he ends up murdering her husband um, because he, well, first he invites him home, um, gets him drunk, and tries to get him to sleep with his wife to take credit for this child. And, uh, and because he won't do that out of loyalty to the king, <laughs> he sends him off with a letter for his own demise that Joab reads, and the letter reads that send him to the to the front of the lines, and then pull back so that he is killed. So he he basically authors his murder, his death, and then uh, a prophet named Nathan comes and says, gives him a parable and says, hey, um, you know, basically reveals his sin. He confesses his sin, um, and this is basically David's confession of sin here in Psalms 51, and it says this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. How many of this moment are going, he doesn't deserve to be forgiven? Man, I, I don't know. I just, I think sometimes we look at people like Hitler and, and things that other people do, and we're going, not them. But we need to understand that God's grace is bigger than our sin. And God's grace covers, I mean, that Christ suffered and died, that he did suffer the penalty for our sin. But that here's David coming and saying, 
Have mercy. He's begging God's mercy on me, O God. According, and then he, he declares God's attributes, God's character. He says, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercies. David knew the character of God and he leaned on his faithfulness and begged for his mercy. He says, have mercy on me. Verse two, he says, wash me uh, thoroughly from my iniquity and or sin and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So, and then here's the passage. So that you may be justified in your works and blameless in your judgment. See, God's judgments are perfect. His expression of righteousness in his, 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 his judgment is, is an expression of his faithfulness. And, and he is, Paul is, I mean, David here is declaring that. Paul is emphasizing that and saying that, do we understand that it is God's faithfulness administered. And here's David going, God, I understand that your character demands justice, but I'm begging you for your mercy. Begging you for your mercy. Um, in this passage, it says, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Man, one of the things we need to understand, and I think it's so important to this passage, is this. If I want to say, God forbid, but I, I mean, the thought of this, even using this as an illustration, is, is just sick to me. But I, I use this anyway, is that if, if I were to commit adultery on my wife, Sheba, and go out with an, another woman that has a husband, man, I would be sinning against her. I'd be sinning against her husband. It would be horrific. But in a human sense, the, the love that I betray the most is my wife's love. The one that I sin against primarily and ultimately is my wife. Does that make sense? And what we have to understand that it's an intimate context that we, that we have relationship with God. And, uh, and He loves us desperately and, and the cross declares that. So when we, when we sin, we, we sin primarily and ultimately against Him. And those have, those have effects, but they have ripple effects. And it, it is God's desire that we proclaim his faithfulness through his mercy and righteousness. Part of what's being unpacked here is, hey, listen, if me sinning makes you look good, God, like shows off your mercy, shows off your righteous judgment, then why am I being judged for showing off your, you know, your, your faithfulness? I mean, for me, initially it sounds crazy, but people will go to unbelievable extents in order to justify their sin in order to say well i want to find a way to continue to do the things that i want to do rather than just to as david did in the opening part of this psalms 51 is just to throw himself at the mercy of god and find out his promises are true or faithful and it's it's that faithfulness to god's promises in christ that that liberates and sets us free it's amazing it really is amazing grace. And so um, many of you are familiar with Great is Thy Faithfulness. You know, this, this particular song starts, Great is Thy Faithfulness, O God to me, there is no shadow of turning with Thee. Thou greatest, thou, thou changest not. You know, that's, that's one of the characteristics of faithfulness is that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thy compassions, they fail not. As though, as though has as thou has been, thou forever will be. 
And then later on, another after the choruses, another part of this or a verse says, Pardon for sin and a peace endureth thy own dear presence to cheer and to guide. God's presence with us, God's pardon, God's grace. Strength for tomorrow and bright hope for today. Um, Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine and 10,000 besides. Man, don't we draw strength from God's faithfulness? You know, one of the things that one of the things that this, this section is talking about, man, let's not look for excuses for our sin. Let's just look to God's faithfulness and his mercy. Let's, and that, that doesn't mean that it's a license to sin. We, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? It doesn't, it, 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 it doesn't make sense. The life application commentary had this to say. Paul wants to remind his Jewish brothers that their lack of faith was not hindered by God's plan or did not hinder God's plan. Paul does not want his people to miss the significance of God's faithfulness. In spite of their failures, God still allowed them to be the people of the Messiah. In fact, the Jews' lacked, um, lack of faith is a clear witness to the absolute need of a Savior. And don't miss this. Neither they nor we can save ourselves. God's faithfulness is our only hope, our only hope. So the question that's asked here is this. If some failed to have faith in Christ, what does that say about God's faithfulness? So does does our lack of faith affect God's faithfulness? No. Does, I mean, and it's hard because I, I find that, I mean, we're called to be the light of the world, a city on a hill, to, to let our, our good deeds be seen so that God gets the glory. But God's God is not affected by our choices, but we surely are affected by the choices we make in light of God's promises. And the answer was this, despite dis- disbelief, God's faithfulness to rescue prevails, prevails. Matthew Henry said this, enjoyment of God's word and ordinances is the chief happiness of a people. But God's promises are made only to believers. Therefore, the unbelief of some or of many cannot make his faithfulness of no effect. If he fulfills his promises to his people and brings his threat, his his threatened vengeance upon unbelievers, he is just. God's judging God's judging the world should forever silence all doubts and reflections upon his justice. The wickedness and obstinate unbelief of the Jews proved man's need of the righteousness of God by faith and also his justice in punishing for sin. And finally, the last four verses, kind of a repetitious piece. Um, Paul says in verses five and six, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? So if I lie and that proves God's truth, then where does God have the basis to judge me? Because I'm, I'm making God famous in, in, in my lying. That's kind of the thought process here. And, and, and the extent that people will go to or perceived go to in order to excuse our sin or to avoid God's righteous wrath rather than just trusting in the hope and faithfulness and love of God in Christ. That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us, I speak in a human way. 
by no means. For then, how could God judge the world? Right? If God fails to be the the perfect righteous judge because he's excusing sin based on the fact that, oh, you sin, your sin was promotes my glory. That's not how God's God's wrath works. We are more willing to rationalize than repent. I mentioned that earlier. We are more willing to rationalize than repent. And we have to understand that that in our DNA, in our fallen nature, you know, we, we will move to hide, cover up, blame rationalize rather than just acknowledge our sin confess agree with God about it and repent and know that if we confess our sins he's faithful and just faithful and just and he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness so the question is this but if if unrighteousness is necessary for God's righteousness to be seen how is it fair for him to judge us that's what the question is asking and the answer is this. In that reasoning, would God, uh, God would not judge anyone and, would, uh, and only God is worthy of judgment for the for sake of his perfection. And so we come back to the big question at the close of our time. The big question is this. If God's faithfulness is not dependent on my faithfulness, then why should I be faithful? Why should we be faithful? Because in light of his faithfulness to us, we are overwhelmed by his graciousness and love and mercy. Our lives are a response to what God has done for us in his faithfulness. So why should we be faithful? Well, this passage is clearly in the, in the realm of, of wrath because we understand that God is serious about sin and the wages of sin is death. And the other piece is, and if my sinfulness makes God look so good, then why should he punish me? Because that's who he is. He's righteous and just. He wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be the righteous God that we know if he didn't punish sin. And man, does that not brew in you a gratitude for Christ's willing sacrifice for us? Does that not just... I mean, does that not just declare God's faithfulness to his promises and the the necessity of the cross? And Paul finishes with this in 7 and 8. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, just basically reiterating the question in verse 5, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Paul says, and why not do evil that good may come? as some slanderously charge us with saying, and their condemnation is just. What's the question being asked? If my sin promotes his glory, shouldn't I sin more for God's benefit? Why am I condemned as a lawbreaker when I am making God look good? Um, Answer, I have been accused of saying sin that God's, I'm sorry, sin that God's love for you may abound. So go on sinning, so that God's love for you may abound. That's what people were saying about Paul. This mindset is worthy of God's judgment. God's judgment. And before I finish with our, our challenge, I, I want to say this, is that because we've been given such a great gift, why would we, why would we spit on the gift giver with an attitude of thanks, but I'm going to continue to do it my way? Why would, we, why would we have an attitude to avoid the mercy and grace of the cross by trying to justify or rationalize our sin when God has made a way? 
And I know the, the thought of surrendering our life and giving up our, 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 our sinful desires is a struggle. But with the Spirit's help, God's faithfulness at work, we can experience the mercy of God. And we can go on, go on living without the desire and the propensity to sin as we submit ourselves to the control of the Holy Spirit. And so my final question and challenge is this. Is God unjust to punish the unrighteous? Many believe that God's wrath contradicts his loving nature. But God judges, God's judgments are based on his own character, not on society's norms for fairness. God is not accountable to some external vague notion of fair play. His personal moral uprightness is the standard by which he judges. The justified in Christ don't justify their sin. They repent and trust in God's faithfulness. Let's bow our hearts. Father, help us, um, help us, Lord, to never take the cross for granted, to never lose sight of the wonder of the grace that's been extended to us, the loving arm that has purchased us and ransomed us and rescued us from ourselves and our sin. Lord, I pray that that your faithfulness would continue to move us to uh, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, that we would walk in repentance as you reveal your will and your word, as you perfect us as Christ is perfect, as you finish the work that you've started in us, Lord, that you would find a submitted heart and a yielded spirit that longs to do what you want, that submits ourselves knowing that your way is perfect and my way is flawed, that we would always look into your word with a heart of repentance, knowing that I long to think and believe everything your word says because that's the truth that I desire to be my personal reality. Father, thank you for your faithfulness in your righteousness and in your wrath. Thank you for your your faithfulness in the cross, grace that's been extended. Thank you that you never overlooked sin, but that you punished sin and that you willingly punished your son so that we might be saved. Let us never grow weary of, of hearing that good news, that we are loved to that extent. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.